You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading is Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make your, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, is, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, is a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, now we are listening to your word. We pray that you would speak to us clearly, that we might see you clearly, that we might behold your son who has lived and died for us. We pray for all these things in Christ's name and for our own joy. Amen. You may be seated. How are you doing this evening? This is great. You guys just have led us in great worship. Thank you, musicians. Uh, To behold the glory of Christ and to uh, engage in worship together with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's great to be with you all this evening. Uh, My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Church. Uh, As Clint mentioned earlier, we are now nine weeks into this Ten Commandments series. We've been going through the book of Exodus for many months before that, uh, but this has been a good time for us. Uh, For those of you who are alive and remember, who was responsible for the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Park bombing? Does anybody remember? Yeah, so, okay, so Mark says, or Ryan says, Richard Jewell, if any of us do have a name in our head that goes along with this bombing, it is certainly Richard Jewell. Jewell was a security guard who found a backpack on this evening as the Olympics were going on with three pipe bombs in them, or in the bag. He alerted officials, and then he began evacuating, the, the, the rest of the security team began evacuating this entire plaza, and then three minutes later, as the evacuation is going on, going on, uh, the bag detonates, and one person was killed and 111 others were wounded. Uh, Many more folks would likely have been killed had 
Richard Jewell, not alerted officials, and he was initially all over the news and praised as a hero. But within a couple of days, he became the prime suspect. Despite knowing hardly any of the facts of the case, then the entire country then began to assume that he was the one behind this bombing. Uh, But he wasn't. In 2003, the real bomber was caught. Does anyone know his name, Ryan? No, none of us do. Uh, Eric Rudolph pled guilty to that bombing and three other bombings and is now serving four life sentences in a prison in Colorado. Clint Eastwood is directing a movie on Richard Jewell that comes out this December. As it happens, I'm excited to see it, even though uh, in 2006, the then governor of Georgia then brought Richard Jewell forward and publicly exonerated him, tried to publicly clear his name and thank him. Uh, Many of us, uh, probably most of us in this room, think that he did it. His life was never the same. He died of heart failure in 2007 at age 44. As Israel is encamped here at Mount Sinai, entering into covenant with Yahweh, God gives his people this ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. We think of this command as being, you shall not lie. But more than that, we shall not bear false witness, which as we'll see, even more directly than Richard Jewell, who died many years later, uh, this is a command of life and death. It is a command that comes to God's people and demands that they be a people of truth, a people of honesty, of righteousness and justice, that they be patient with their words, that they be self-controlled with their words, that they be a people who protects the weak and vulnerable, that they value others as dignified image bearers of God. So like we've done Uh, Every week in these 10 words, these 10 commandments tonight, we will think through this ninth commandment in two halves, understanding the law and then living the law, and hopefully see that this is a deep, deep commandment that has much to say for our good and for the transformation of our whole being. Before jumping straight into this particular commandment, as we go now into understanding the law, and since we haven't in a couple weeks, I want to take just a few minutes to zoom out a bit and think more broadly about the law, especially uh, since in two weeks we're going to like accelerate out of the Ten Commandments, and if we're not careful, we might just like run off the road and get stuck in the mud of the rest of the law that's to follow. It might seem really mundane, or worse than that, it might seem really confusing, and we won't have any idea what to do with it. Hopefully, we will have a little bit better idea uh, over the past uh, eight weeks that we've been going through what the purpose of the law, and trust me, we will still definitely get to and answer all of our questions of why do we obey this law and not that one? Like, why is it seemingly arbitrary that we Christians can eat shellfish and wear polyblend t-shirts and stuff while then saying that it's still not okay to commit adultery or steal or something? We'll get there. But to prime the pump a bit, I uh, want us to consider a bit this evening what is happening here at Mount Sinai. Israel, having just been redeemed from slavery in Egypt, they are now entering into a covenant with Yahweh. And while there will be blessing and curse that comes with obedience of God dwelling with his people and prospering them in peace or not, like we mentioned last week, it is not their obedience It is not their 
ability to obey the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law that saves them. Responding to and obeying the law, obeying the Ten Commandments, was to be for Israel an exercise of faith, an after-the-fact exercise of faith for what God had done for them, a a response to his salvation, just like God's covenant with Abraham. How does all this work with Abraham? Well, Abraham first responds to God. He comes to Canaan in Genesis 12. He trusts him and follows him, both in circumcision in Genesis 17, and then in the later scene to follow with his son Isaac in Genesis 22. If Abraham had said in Genesis 17, after the covenant that had been introduced and, and initiated in Genesis 15, yeah, I don't really know about circumcision, God. Like, that sounds kind of intrusive and kind of painful. I don't think I'm down for that actually now anymore. Or like, you've got to be kidding about what you're asking me to do with my son Isaac. That sounds ludicrously stupid or even wicked. I will not follow you in this way. Would he actually have had the faith that he supposedly had, that earlier in Genesis 15, God had responded to his faith and then credited all, uh, all of that as righteousness. No, walking in faith demonstrates a deep understanding of the God or of the covenant that God had initiated unilaterally in love. So both of these covenants, the law at Sinai, the covenant with Abraham, along with the covenant with Adam and Eve, are about hearing God's word. Basically, everything that we just sang, that we are listening to your word and then having by grace and then through faith, hearing your word and then Understanding that obeying, that walking in your word, obeying your word is actually better than not. That the life that you are offering is actually life. All of these covenants, along with several others in the Old Testament, are interconnected. They're progressive. They are ultimately preparatory for when Jesus comes and is the fulfillment for all of them. We'll think more about what this means with the Mosaic Covenant specifically for Jesus to be the fulfillment of the law, as he says he is in Matthew 5. But Jesus comes and he like absorbs all of these covenants into himself. He doesn't abolish them. He doesn't get rid of them. They're just fulfilled. They find their end in him. As the God-man, he becomes both the faithful covenant partner that we humans could not and would not be, but also... As God, he is able to divinely pay for the infinite debt of disobedience and of sin. And so, and so, in the same way that Noah, in the same way that Abraham or Moses or David or Isaiah would never say that they are somehow in the clear by their law-keeping, by obedience, we would also say with these Old Testament saints that you, O God, have saved us by your love, not by our law-keeping, But if we actually have a clear and deep understanding of what you have done for us in saving us by your love, that we will actually now desire to obey. And yet, while we've had lots of practical application over the past couple months with these Ten Commandments, we would be totally missing the point if we began to think, man, if I would just start doing this better, if I would clear more idols out of my worship, if I would stop uh, lusting in my heart or hating in my heart, or if I were honoring my father and mother, mother better than I am, then God would be more willing to love me. So right off the top here, before we even get to the ninth commandment, 
In the same vein of what we sang earlier, he will hold me fast. It is his love for us that saves us. But a deeper understanding of his love then changes our very lives. Let let me get your your hair blown back here a bit with some 250-year-old encouragement from our brother Charles Spurgeon. This is really good. Spurgeon preached this. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. This is the Holy Spirit's work. But it is Satan's work to do just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All of these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, Look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. Let's go eat. We can just finish here and be done. And yet, for our increasing joy and for what, much of what Clint prayed for us in 1 Peter 2, for the good of our neighbor, we actually need the ninth commandment. Today, if we were to come up with like 10 norms, 10, 10 standards for a healthy and flourishing society, we would undoubtedly include some rule or standard that protects the weak, that protects the vulnerable, that puts some kind of limit on unchecked power and corruption. And at first glance, through the Ten Commandments, that kind of norm or that kind of law might be glaringly absent. Well, as we'll see, this command, this Ninth Commandment, certainly has wider implications for all truth-telling. The language here, though, is doing just that. It is a way to protect the weak, to protect the vulnerable, and to check power. The language here is pretty technical to limit legal testimony. This is legal, court of law language that is used here. These are the days before fingerprints. These are the days before DNA testing. These are the days before surveillance cameras or even law schools and bar exams. And in surrounding ancient cultures, all it took was one accusation, especially an accusation from someone in a place of power or authority, and then based on that accusation, then a person, especially if this person was weak or vulnerable, then that person could be locked away for the rest of their life or even executed immediately, perhaps even without evidence. And some might say, little has changed. But Israel was to be a shining light. Israel was to be a culture that protects the weak and the vulnerable, that honors the truth. Eyewitness testimony in these days was still to be depended on, but it is not just the testimony of one. The Mosaic Law 
as it continues through Exodus and then in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, will make clear that a, uh, a legal case can only be made if it is corroborated by a second witness. It cannot be a, a case of one witness against a defendant, where it then becomes a case of he said, she said. That is to be, this is a culture that, shaped by generous grace, shaped by the salvation of God, is to be a culture that loves one another, that values one another, and values the truth. While we've been thinking about this second half of the Ten Commandments as a way to love our neighbor, we love our neighbor by not murdering them, by not stealing from them, by not committing adultery with one another— This ninth commandment is the only commandment that actually uses the word neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You are not to accuse your neighbor of something that he or she did not do. To do so is to not love your neighbor, but is to hate your neighbor. And especially with accusations that carried the death penalty, words carried a very real life and death effect. Words, especially accusations, were to always be truthful and motivated by love. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 outlines what is to happen if if it's found out that an accuser is actually lying. The punishment that would have come to the crime if that person, the defendant, is actually found guilty, if it's found out that I was falsely accusing this person, then whatever the punishment for his crime would have been now gets meted out or given to me. So if I am accusing this person of a capital offense, and then later in the trial it is found out that I have falsely accused him, now I receive the death penalty. This is serious business. We are to be a, or Israel is to be a society of truth. Something like this, or maybe even better, is what many early modern European countries did. If you accuse someone of a crime that gets that person arrested, then the person who made the accusation would also have been arrested until the end of the trial. You have to be really wanting the truth to be found out to make that kind of accusation. I don't actually think that's a good idea, but this would surely clear up an overcrowded legal system and would probably put half the lawyers in Albuquerque out of business if we were to reinstitute that kind of dealing. But Just as murder is the worst form of hatred and then encompasses all other lower forms of hatred of the heart, and adultery is the most destructive destructive form of sexual sin, but then also encompasses all sexual sin and sexual sin of the heart, falsely accusing or lying about your neighbor in court is the worst form of lying, perjury. But this command certainly encompasses all forms of lying or lack of truth. Later, the the prophet Hosea would accuse Israel of breaking many of the Ten Commandments. He says in Hosea 4, he says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Hosea doesn't say there is taking the Lord's name in vain. There is falsely accusing others in court. There is murder and stealing and adultery. No, he says there is all of that and there is lying. So he extrapolates the 
just legal form of lying, perjury, into just lying in general. There is a culture in Hosea's day that just does not value the truth. There's a sense in which murdering someone or beginning an affair with someone takes like real gumption. It takes commitment. You have to really want to do that. Whereas a passing thought of anger or a quick and passing lustful glance just almost seems like the natural bent of humanity. To actually follow through, though, takes more commitment. Well, in the same way, while many of us have never gone down to the police station and, like, made accusations, false accusations against someone, like, I've never gone downtown, like, walked in and say, I'd like to accuse Karen Avery of robbing gas stations. She's got a real problem with it. I know you won't find surveillance footage, but trust me. Or even like wrongfully suing someone. Perhaps you haven't done that. Our more casual or like harmless forms of less than truths or dishonoring speech, left to ourselves, this is just kind of who we are. It's just kind of is always coming out of us, literally. On Wednesday morning, I'm not lying, like right after I had like written that last paragraph on my computer. I clicked over to my Gmail tab, and I had just gotten an email from another pastor in town with a quote that he thought I might find helpful from Charles Spurgeon's book, Lectures to My Students. I clicked the reply button, and I started typing, and I said, thanks for this, man. Uh, yeah, I haven't read Lectures for My Students in a long time, so it's been, this, this is a really good reminder to go back and reread. Uh, thanks, this was helpful. But here's the thing. Even though I absolutely should have, I have never read Charles Spurgeon's lectures to my students. But I had I was already clicked the reply button and was writing in such a way to make it sound like I had. I was basically, the subtext of my heart was, man, who's this guy I think he is? He has nothing to teach me. I know everything already. I know all of the good books that have ever been written, and I am aware of them. Uh, so you, sir, have nothing to offer. <laughs> Praise the Lord for his grace and his conviction and that I was writing a sermon on the ninth commandment this week. Because before clicking send, I deleted that sentence. Praise God. <laughs> I deleted that sentence of subtle untruth that he would have never known the difference of, but untruth nonetheless, untruth of exaggeration of my spiritual resume. And instead, I just wrote to him and I said, oh man, thanks, this is super encouraging. Have a great week. <laughs> if we poured over all of our speech, perhaps just from today, how many untruths, how many half-truths how many exaggerations of the truth would we find? I fear that this might be a very scary exercise for us. So let's just move right into living the law. Let's let the ninth commandment begin to hopefully shape and transform us. If, if this commandment exists to keep God's people from false accusations that would bring harm to others, then the most immediate form of speech, a lower level of speech, perhaps not found in the court of law, 
but a lower level of speech that God intends to align and grow uh, in us is exactly that. He intends to curb and align uh, speech that harms others. This certainly wasn't the case for my almost email. However, this is what God uh, perhaps initially wants to uh, confront in our own hearts. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was concerned that when he returned to Corinth, he would, among other things, still find the Corinthian Christians still quarreling, still slandering, still gossiping. In Ephesians 4, he tells the Christians there to get rid of malice, to get rid of slander, not letting corrupting talk come out of their mouths, but only the kind of talk that builds others up. The problem is, and the reason that Paul had to keep writing these things to all kinds of different churches, is because we so easily and quickly use our words not to build others up, but to tear others down. Of course, we can see how damaging the Richard Jewell kind of gossip can be. It ruined this man's career. It ruined his reputation. It likely led to his early death. But we just love to gossip. We love to speak about others. The writer of the Proverbs has sharp insight into the human condition where he says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Satisfying. The warm feeling that gossip brings. We love to be people who have some kind of knowledge about others that most other people do not have. We love to share that knowledge. We love to hear that knowledge. I've read that there's no faster way to find, the, find a friend than to find a mutual enemy. Like, can you believe that she said that? Can you believe that she wore that? Can you believe how they are raising their children? Did you hear about that super embarrassing thing that happened to this person or those people on that date? I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of hearing that others have been trading delicious morsels about us behind our backs to understand and to know how damaging and hurtful gossip can be. Just personally hurtful, but also perhaps you have had your own reputation damaged by gossip. But culturally, I think we lack the self-awareness to realize just how chronically we gossip about others. And so the ninth commandment comes and reminds us that if gossip is something that we would never say to someone's face, that we must not participate. I think we can buy this about each other. Yeah, I, I understand that I should not um, gossip or say something about Matt that I wouldn't say if he weren't also here sitting in the room. But like this politician or that one, stupid. They're idiots. Or my quarterback is a bum and that coach is an idiot and I'm going to post on Facebook to let you all know how terrible they are. Can you believe what Meghan Markle was wearing? or who that celebrity went on a date with. Like in real life or in social media, just because these celebrities or football players or coaches like will never hear of what you're saying about them and they're famous, that doesn't mean that they aren't human and they also should not be the object of your gossip. Like would you actually say this to their face? Maybe a thousand times more than we were in 1996 
in the Atlanta Olympics in 2019. We are an outrage culture. We love it. We live for outrage. It's almost like we are so addicted to outrage that we just keep going back to Facebook or to cable news for our daily hit of outrage. I need a fix to reinforce how stupid other people are and how wise I am. Like five years ago, the phrase fake news wouldn't have meant anything to any of us. Because outrage, though, is turned up to 11 on every single minor news story of the day. It is now almost impossible for us to decipher what is true and what is not true out there. And then if we encounter something that we don't like, we can just wave it off as fake in politics or about ourselves. Truth and the pursuit of truth is like disintegrating in our hands and beginning to just slip through our fingers like sand. It's something that we can't grab hold of any longer. But we are to be a people who longs for truth, who supports truth, who defends truth, who speaks truth, and here's the thing, who hears truth. This not only includes what we say, but what we choose to hear. There's an old Jewish saying about gossip, that gossip and slander kills three. The one about whom it is spoken, we can understand that, right? It also kills the one who speaks it, gossip, but it also kills the one who listens to it. Listening to gossip does something in us. Hearing gossip not only feeds our desire for more and more of it, but it also implicates us as active participants. So since nearly all cable news, even much of social media, is merely just political gossip and slander these days, one wonders how much a Christian should engage in it. Over a coffee and a lunch, if someone starts talking about someone else, certainly amongst ourselves, but even amongst our enemies, those who hate us, or a horrible boss or something, we can interrupt and say, I think we might be about to begin gossiping about this person. I'd really like to honor this person in a way that uh, loves them instead of just talking about them behind their back. Now, there is a sense in which, certainly, my wife and I can talk about things and hard things about the day, but we should seek to speak about the difficult things that have happened in our day as if the person that we are talking about is sitting right there with us. We can, I think, often tend towards saying, well, we've had a hard day, and now i got to vent, and I'm just going to unload all of my frustrations about this person, not thinking about if this is actually honoring to the person. What would they think if they were sitting here hearing everything that I'm saying about this person? We also need to be aware of how we can gossip even with ourselves, our own inner monologues about what or why someone did something. Coming up with like elaborate theories about why they did this and the ill motives that they certainly must have had to have done that. Instead of just assuming the best in someone. Talking to the person, if necessary. All with patience, with kindness, with love for this person, even with those whom we might even consider our enemies. Of course, none of this jibes with our social media culture of like hot takes. 
where everyone must be exposed and humiliated and destroyed. This is not the culture of Christ. The culture today must hold every evildoer accountable without nuance. And if possible, with utter humiliation of that person so that that person is never able to recover. This is without grace. All of us are guilty of that these days. Perhaps not with our fingers in what we type or perhaps not in what we actually speak with our lips, but certainly with our hearts of wanting wrongdoers exposed and humiliated. But of course, the the flip side of gossip is flattery. If gossip is what we would never say to someone's face, flattery is what we would never say behind their back. Meaning that we don't actually mean what we are saying to this person. We're just puffing them up, buttering them up. We'll exaggerate or embellish uh, so this person will like me or somehow give me more approval or better standing. But I think at the root of all lying, at the root of all unhelpful, unloving speech is two dark human concerns, that of pride and that of fear. Pride was certainly behind my half-true, straight-up untrue email about Spurgeon's book. Like, I am well-read, and you do not need to teach me. Thank you very much. Pride is behind, behind gossip. Like, look what I know. And isn't it fun to sit in a place of superior judgment of others? But fear can just as equally motivate our speech. We exaggerate on a resume. We're just telling a story of something that happened over the weekend because we're afraid that the truth won't be good enough, won't be interesting enough. Our listeners won't be captivated enough or think well of us enough. When confronted with some bit of failure in our life, we we deflect and we make all kinds of excuses. And we even unfairly shift the blame onto others. Instead of owning the failure, we're afraid of the consequences, even for our own reputation. So we just exaggerate, make a half-truth, or just flat-out lie about it. But if we put our speech under the microscope, and we begin to turn the settings like way up, to the highest magnification. We may even find that even what we think might be pride-motivating untrue speech is actually even fear itself. What my almost email showed was not that I actually think that I'm smarter and better than this other pastor in town, but perhaps a fear that, but what if I'm not? I gossip about my friends and family and coworkers. I gossip about celebrities and politicians because I might actually be afraid to hold up the mirror to my own heart and motivations. I want to distract myself from the reality that I actually don't measure up to the standards that I place onto others. And of course, pride and fear aren't just the root of untrue speech, but they're perhaps the root of all sin. This is what Satan, whom Jesus calls the father of lies, Satan comes whispering in Genesis 3, begins to ask, has God really said, did God really speak the truth? 
He begins whispering lies of, you will not surely die. Lies of, you will become like God. And the sad truth of that last lie being that it was actually just a twisting of the truth. Adam and Eve were already like God. They were created in his image. They were co-rulers alongside of God in his earthly project of filling the earth with his glory. But they began to think that their understanding of truth, their grasp of reality, was more trustworthy than God's word to them. And perhaps they began to even fear that God was withholding, that God was somehow stingy, that he was withholding some blessing and good, and that he didn't love them as he said he did, that God was lying. And so they took the fruit and ate. And then now daily following in their footsteps, our sin, our actions, our thoughts, our fears, our half-truths and untruths all reveal that we think that God is a liar. That he's withholding. And that we know the way to acceptance. We know the way to blessing. We know the way to happiness and contentment. And so the first thing that we, re- we need to be reminded of is Titus 1-2, that God never lies. He cannot do it. That Romans 3-4, everyone else is a liar. Though everyone else be a liar, God is true. That Numbers 23-19, that God is not like a man. God is not like us, that he should lie. He is the source of light, and there is no shadow of turning with him. He is the source of light, so he cannot be found in shadow, to be found in darkness, to be found in half-truth, untruth, or just lies. If there is fault and pride and fear, it is not because of God, it is because of us. Which is then the second thing that we need to recognize, that while God never lies, we do. John says in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The mirror of the law, if we are actually clearly looking, if we are clearly looking at ourselves and observing our condition, the law, the mirror, leaves us as unacceptable, sinful liars before God. James describes our speech and our tongues as corrupted by the fires of hell that we willingly use as almost like conductors to connect the fires of hell to then just burn the whole world down. We gladly and willingly do this in the way that we speak. And so David asks God in Psalm 15, he asks, who will actually be able to dwell and live with God? The answer, he who speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Essentially, those who are able to dwell and live with God are those who keep the ninth commandment, which is bad news. Jesus in Revelation 21 and 22 says that for everyone who loves and practices falsehood, a place of fire and sulfur has been prepared. We all said this when we were little kids. Liars go to hell. And that is true just like all other forms of sin. A place has been prepared for you and for me, a room full of liars. Left to ourselves, we have no hope and we have much to fear. But God has not left us there. He will keep both ends of the covenant. 
Jesus comes with no deceit in his mouth. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He comes as the Psalm 15 man who ascends the holy hill of the Lord in truth and righteousness on our behalf. And he says that through him you are able to know the truth about God and his redeeming love, and that truth will set you free from slavery, from slavery to yourself, from slavery from an untrue heart and lying lips. Are you trusting by faith in the righteous law-keeping of Christ on your behalf? That while you have lied, he has not. Are you trusting by faith that you have been set free from your unrighteous law-breaking by the death of Christ on your behalf? I pray that you would. Friend, I urge you today to trust in Christ and to know his love and his salvation on your behalf. We would love to talk to you about this. But you cannot work your way into covenant with God. No amount of truth-telling will merit your acceptance before God. He must do it, and he alone. But for those of you who do know the grace and the kindness and the love of God through Christ, he has not just come to make us free, not just come to forgive us of sin, while that is true. He has come to make us holy, all the way to live into the full reality of human existence, to find full joy in hearing his word to us and then walking with him, to live amongst the nations, nations and societies of gossip, of slander, of malice, of flattery, of exaggeration, of falsehood, and instead live as people of the truth, who love the truth, value the truth, defend the truth, for the love of our neighbor. So in your D groups this week or this month, the next time you meet, in honesty, in truthfulness with one another, answer these questions. What feels healthy right now in your family, with the Lord, in our church, at work, just in life? And then answer honestly, truthfully with one another, what feels broken right now? What is hard about life with God? What is hard about our families and our church and your work? What feels broken? These D groups are only as good as our honesty with one another. Pretending like real sin, real weakness, real fear, real doubt, real pain isn't actually lying under the surface. It's doing no one any good. Let's speak the truth to love in, in love to one another so that when you say, hey, I'll be praying for you or praying, you actually do it. And if you don't intend to, don't say you will. He is forming us into a people who will be like him, to be truth tellers because God tells the truth. So do not obey so that he will free you and save you from slavery, finally accept you because you have begun to now tell the truth more often. But Christian, through the cross of Christ, because he has freed you, because he has saved you, because he loves you, such a cost that he has bought you with. Now with much grace, be holy as he is holy. Speak the truth in love. What a calling that he has given to us. 
to be a people of truth. This is a high calling. And praise the Lord that he will finish the work. Let's pray that he would. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you have loved us enough to tell us the truth about yourself and about ourselves. You did not have to speak to us, but you have. You have told us the truth that we are sinners in need of grace, that we are liars in need of truth, that we are lawbreakers in need of a law keeper. Lord Jesus, we thank you for invading this world, for interrupting our lives, that you would, by your cross, bring us grace and forgiveness while the world around us increasingly demands vengeance and judgment. Help us to be people whose speech and whose lives are full of grace and truth. Holy Spirit, bring conviction in our lives. Shine your light to help us see the blatant and to also see the the subtle ways that we embellish or utter falsehoods or even half-truths. Thank you, O trying God, for not being content just to get us off the hook for our sin. And now we pray that you would continue to complete the work that you have begun in us by making us holy for our own joy and for the clarity of your character to our unbelieving neighbors around us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.